On Monday, Ed Miliband gave a speech at his old school, Haverstock <laughs> Comprehensive. This is part of what he said. We can't honestly say the greed, selfishness and gross irresponsibility that shocked us all so deeply is confined to the looters or their parents. It's not the first time we've seen this kind of me-first, take-what-you-can culture. The bankers who took millions while destroying people's savings. Greedy, selfish and immoral. The MPs who fiddled their expenses. Greedy, selfish and immoral. The people who hacked phones to get stories to make money for themselves. Greedy, selfish and immoral. People who talk about the sick behaviour of those without power should talk equally about the sick behaviour of those with power. Let's not pretend that the crisis of values in our society is confined to a minority only at the bottom when we see the morality of millions of hard-working, decent people under siege from the top as well. Let's talk about what it does to our culture. Too often we've sent a message from the top to the bottom of Britain's society that says, anything goes, you're in it for yourself. As long as you can get away with it, who cares? As long as you can get away with it, who cares? We saw last week in the parable of the shrewd manager that he knew that his time in his old employment was doomed. And so he did what he could to prepare himself for life beyond the old workplace. He made himself friends. He built up goodwill which would stand him in good stead in the future. In other words, he's thinking about the future and he's preparing for it. What a contrast with today's Britain, a society that lives for the present, all of us, rich and poor, and the squeezed middle as they like to call it. We want material goods now. We want pleasures now. We want the good life now. We can't wait until we've earned it. We can't wait until we've cooked it. We can't wait until we've learnt it. We want it instantly now. And if we haven't got it, we find some way of getting it. We live for the present without thought for the future or the consequences of our behaviour. And as long as you can get away with it, who cares? Well, that may be what Ed Miliband thinks. It may be what our society thinks. It may be what you yourself think. But our passage today makes it quite clear that whatever we think, there is one who cares. And there is one who assures us that in the end, we will not get away with it without the need for closed-circuit television, without laws to force rioters to remove their hoodies, without extra police on the streets, we have a divine ruler who sees all, a divine judge who brings justice to all. But we have too a merciful saviour who gives warning to all. I have two simple points this morning. The first is this. God's justice, there's no getting away with it getting away from it. Jesus' parable tells the story of two men with two very different destinies. The first man, well, he was rich. Very rich. He wore the finest clothes that money could buy. 
The purple and fine linen that verse 19 refers to suggests the very base, best, made to measure Savile Row suits. He ate the finest food that money could buy. The Greek suggests kind of gourmet dining on exotic and costly dishes. And he did this every day, we're told. And he lived in the finest home that money could buy. Uh, an ostentatious mansion. The gate that's mentioned here, outside which Lazarus is thrown, is not your typical garden gate, but an, a huge ornamental, um, what do you call it, um, portico that might adorn a palace or a temple. As one commentator has put it, material prosperity oozed out of his every pore. So the first man was rich. And Jesus' first century hearers would all have considered him blessed by God. You see, wealth for them was seen as a reward for godliness. So that's the first man. Well, the second man, he could hardly have been more different. He was a beggar, verse 20. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. For this man, there were no fine clothes, no sumptuous meals, no home. He was so hungry he would have welcomed even the scraps falling from the rich man's table. He was so disregarded that he was literally thrown down at the rich man's gate. And he was so helpless he couldn't even stop the stray dogs from licking his sores. He's a picture of abject misery. Almost dehumanised, human dignity trampled on and disgraced. And the Pharisees, listening to this story, would have seen nothing wrong with this. I mean, he must have been a sinner. He got himself into his own own predicament. He deserved what he got. That's how they'd have seen it. But this beggar has something the rich man didn't. He has a name. Most unusual in Jesus' stories, in fact, I think this is the only occasion in one of Jesus' stories where a character is actually mentioned by name. So why do you think that is? Well, you only need a name if you're known by someone. The rich man, as you said, is given no name. He'd have had one, probably, but it's irrelevant. He was rich, but his wealth was spent on material pleasures. People didn't feature in his priorities. He was a faceless millionaire. And when it counted, he had no friends. The beggar, by contrast, was not anonymous. Somebody knew him by name. And his name suggests that it was God. Because Lazarus literally means he whom God helps. He whom God helps. Lazarus, you see, didn't plot revenge or harbour bitterness. He didn't blame God and curse him. His name suggests that instead he looked to God, trusted God, had faith in God as the one who helps. So two very different men with two very different destinies. And here's the first bombshell. When he dies, the beggar is taken to heaven. Verse 22 says the angels carried him to be at Abraham's side. It's rather an unusual description of heaven, but it was not unknown 
uh, in Jewish writings. In fact, scholars have discovered a story that was well known in the first century that uses this very language. And it's probably Jesus taking up a story that was in common usage and giving it a twist that they were not expecting. And Jesus clearly wants us to understand that contrary to what his hearers would have thought, the beggar, with his trust in God, finds himself in the company of God's redeemed people, symbolised here by Abraham. So the first bombshell, Lazarus finds himself in heaven, but the second bombshell is perhaps even greater. Uh, Look with me at verse 22, second part. The rich man also died and was buried. See, he had a proper burial, he could afford it. Uh, Lazarus, we're told, weren't told whether he had a burial or not. But in Hades, verse 23, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. The rich man goes to hell to torment and there's no hope of escape verse 25 but Abraham replied son remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things but now he's comforted here and you're in agony and besides all this between us and you a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us message is clear there's no purgatory there's no second chance we have this one life in which to make our choices and after that in the words of Hebrews 9 man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment God's justice there's no getting away with it and for this man this rich man it's too late but why Why? What has this rich man done to deserve it? You see, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with wealth. I mean, Abraham himself was a very wealthy man. So there's nothing wrong with wealth in itself. There's no suggestion that he exploited or defrauded people. The issue is, what does he do with his wealth? Many evangelical ministries throughout the world have been set in motion by financial support from the Mustard Seed Foundation. Friends International, with whom I've worked for many years, has received grants on more than one occasion from this uh, foundation. The founder of the Mustard Seed Foundation um, might have been one of the wealthiest men in America, perhaps not quite in Bill Gates' category, but not far off it. Um, but he's given almost all of his money away to this foundation. A friend of mine knows him, and on a trip to the US, I was driven past this man's front door. By middle-class American standards, his home was, was okay. By wealthy American standards, it was decidedly pokey. And I was told that that was typical of his lifestyle. The cars that he drove, the holidays he took, and just his general way of living was very ordinary for someone who could have been so wealthy. He's chosen to spend his money not on himself but on God's work 
and other people. Verses 10 to 12 of this chapter that we looked at last week implies that all wealth and resources that we possess are actually given to us on trust. They're not a reward for godliness, rather the reverse. They're given as a test of our godliness to see how well we steward them in the service of others. And that, of course, is precisely what the rich man didn't do. He failed to use his wealth to serve others. He had ample opportunity to do so right at his gate. was a man in whose life he could have invested, but he simply didn't see him. Or worse still, and this is probably true because he knew Lazarus's name in heaven, he says, send Lazarus. Um, he saw him, but he ignored him. But what about us? We must be careful not to think this only applies to rich bankers with large bonuses. If we've food in the fridge, clothes on our back and a roof over our head, we're richer than 75% of the world. If we have money in the bank, in our wallets and spare change in a dish, we're amongst the world's 8% richest people. And in any event, whatever we have, we always have something to share. I once met a student, an Oxford student here, who'd spent his summer vacation travelling uh, from Istanbul in Turkey, travelling east into Central Asia. And his comment has remained with me for more than 20 years. He said, the further east I travelled, the poorer the people, but the more generous their hospitality. Right on our doorsteps are ample opportunities to be good stewards of all that God has entrusted to us. And I'm very struck here by the idea that Lazarus was known to God. Because I ask myself, how many of the needy people in East Oxford do we know by name? The big issue seller outside Tesco, the asylum seekers down the road, those who frequent stepping stones the single mum around the corner who struggles to make ends meet and whose children test her patience to the limit. Do we know these people, or at least some of them by name? I confess, I don't. Do we invest time getting to know them? Do we have them in our homes? Do we invest financial resources in ministries that ease their pain? Do we tell them the good news of a saviour? The rich man had needs at his doorstep and he conspicuously fails to do anything about them. He thought he could get through life simply living for himself but with God's justice there's no getting away from it. We're stewards of all that God has given us and we'll be judged not only for actively pursuing dishonest gain like the rioters and looters but also for our failure to do good with what we've been given. Of course, there are limits on what any individual can do. We have limited time, we have limited energy, often health issues, we have limited resources. But the real issue here is that of the heart. When we look at those in need, do we say, like the Pharisees, oh, they deserve what they get, it's their own fault? Or do we look on the crowds, as Jesus did, and have compassion on them? And having compassion, do we do what we can do to serve them? In these chapters, 
Luke's wanting us to grasp hold of a lifestyle that is appropriate for a prodigal who's been generously welcomed home by the father. Uh, You see, a grateful child will want to adopt the family values. He'll want to share in the father's heart of rescuing lost people. That was the great challenge Jesus was issuing to the Pharisees in the story of the the prodigal son and the, the, the older son who stayed outside the party. The grateful child wants to share in what the father's doing. A grateful child wants to stop living for self and ask God for strength to live for others. But if we're still in the in it for yourself, as Ed Miliband puts it, neglecting needs on our doorsteps, then perhaps we've not yet come home to the father. Or more likely in this church context, we're still like the older brother standing outside, not willing to come in. In either case, we may still be estranged from the Father. In his speech, Ed Miliband sought to move the spotlight from the looters to the leaders, accusing them of the same kind of greed, the attitude that says, take what you can, if you can get away with it. But Jesus points the finger rather at a different group of people, many of them like us, from the squeezed middle. He targets the self-satisfied those of us who think we're better than others, those of us who are law-abiding, church-going, convinced that God is pleased with us. But if we fail to be compassionate, if we fail to serve those less fortunate than ourselves, it may indicate that we are outside the kingdom. If you're unsure about that this morning... If you're unsure about whether God is in your life, at work in you, changing you to be like that, making you into that grateful child, then have a word with Dan or me at the end. Let this story be a warning from our loving Saviour to bring you back to himself so he can then be at work in you, changing you to be more like himself. So my first point is this, God's justice, there's no getting away from it. Uh, Then secondly, uh, God's word. There's no getting around it. It was about 20 years ago during a university mission here in Oxford. I was sat in a small meeting room in Oriel College with a bunch of international students. And a Danish PhD student was complaining that, that if God existed, he must be playing games with us. He wasn't showing himself to us. He he should reveal himself thrust of his argument. The speaker responded, do you have a Bible? To which the student said, yes, of course. Have you read it? Silence reigned. The rich man in Jesus' story was clearly desperate that his family should be warned of the hell that faced them. Verse 27, he answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Like that Danish student, the rich man wanted some supernatural sign from heaven to be sent to them. In his case, he thought that Lazarus coming back from the dead might do the trick. But Jesus wants his hearers to be very clear. God makes himself known through his word. Verse 29, Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. 
The rich man's not convinced. But Abraham insists in verse 30. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. God's word is enough. If God's word doesn't persuade us, then nothing else will, not even apparitions from the dead. Now, we know, of course, that Jesus did indeed come back from the dead, full bodily resurrection. But what did he do when he came? He came proclaiming the word of God. If you turn over a couple of pages in Luke's Gospel to chapter 24 and verse 25, it's on page 1061. The context is that it's the third day after Jesus' death. Two of his disciples are walking to Emmaus a few miles outside Jerusalem. A stranger has joined them and they've been telling him about the events of the past few days and the stories they've heard about Jesus' tomb being empty. And so we read verse 25. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? What does Jesus do when he appears to his disciples? He gives them a Bible study. Tim Chester writes, if the risen Christ on that first Easter day made himself known through the word, then we, should, then we shouldn't suppose that we can make him known in any other way. No amount of human wisdom or philosophy or contemplation, apart from the Bible, will tell you the meaning of Jesus' resurrection. No one in the Easter story has a clue what's going on until Jesus explains it from the Bible. Only the exposition of the word will make people's hearts burn. Luke's message is clear. Christ becomes known through the Bible. It may not sound trendy, Tim Chester writes, but it's God's way. God rules through his word and he extends that rule through his word. God's word, there's no getting round it. What is it that turns a person from selfishness, greed and an indifference to the love of God? What is it that works repentance and faith in the heart of a person and puts them on the right road to heaven? Down the centuries, people have suggested all kinds of alternatives, including signs and wonders being a sure way to attract a crowd and convince people to become Christians. But Jesus claims precisely the opposite, verse 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. He's insisting that even the resurrection will not guarantee the conversion of the world. And we know it's true. How many believed in Jesus as a consequence 
of his own resurrection? Not many is the answer. And we've seen even among the disciples his resurrection had to be accompanied by his explanation of the scriptures. And when the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost, it was the preaching of, God, uh, preaching of the word of God that brought conviction of sin and the conversion of 3,000 people. And as the early church grew, it's very noticeable that Luke describes the growth as the word of God spreading. Acts 12.24 is one of many references. The word of God continued to increase and spread. Now, of course, we believe in an all-powerful God who continues to work miracles. Uh, read recently of a young man in South Africa called Philippe. He came from the Congo. As a teenager, he twice had encounters with violent men breaking into his house and threatening him with death. But on both occasions, these attackers were frightened away by a, a man shining in a bright light who just appeared from nowhere. Years later, he escaped from the violence in his country to South Africa, where he met a missionary who showed him a video, I think some of us might have seen it, More Than Dreams, um, in which uh, Muslims tell the stories of how God appeared to them in dreams. And he, he saw this, this DVD and he realised that it must have been Jesus who'd protected him on those two occasions. And so he wanted to learn about Jesus. He started to read the Bible. And it wasn't long before it's the word of God brought him to put his trust in Christ. So God does still grant miracles, miracles of healing, visions, and so on. But those who work amongst Muslims, where many of these things seem to take place, will tell you again and again that God uses the miraculous, the vision, to bring the Muslim into a context where they can hear the word of God, where they get a Bible and they start to read it. And it's the word of God that changes their hearts. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we must understand that repentance and faith come through proclamation of the word of God. And that word uh, tells us about Christ and him crucified. So if we have the word of God in our own language, if we've heard the gospel proclaimed, we have no excuse. God's word, there's no getting around it. Now you'll notice this story doesn't tell us about those who don't have the word and haven't heard about it. The story's not addressing that issue. Jesus' audience is those people who have it. People like us, who should know what it says. Verse 29 again. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. We have the word of God. We have no excuse for not knowing what it says. See, the Pharisees were the same. They were good, Bible-believing Jews who prided themselves on keeping the law. But they were so obsessed with proving to one another and themselves how good they were and how wicked were the others, those tax collectors and sinners, that they failed to grasp what the Bible was really saying to them. And in that respect, they're not so different from our tut-tutting at the rioters and looters all self-righteous and holier than thou, 
The problem was they'd stopped reading the Bible to hear what God had to say to them. They'd stopped using it to be like a mirror showing up what they were really like. They were using it to talk about what other people were like. They'd stopped seeing how God wanted them to share in his ministry of compassion to the poor and needy and to tell people about his saving grace. I have one very simple point of application this morning. When we study the Bible on our own, in our home groups, here on a Sunday morning, let's humbly pray that God clearly speak to us. Let's ask him to expose the wickedness and complacency in our own hearts and invite him by his power to change us. You know what my greatest danger is when I preach, when I listen to others preaching, when I study the Bible in any context? My greatest danger is to think about the text applying to someone else. I wish my mother could hear this. I hope John in the back row is paying attention. I should send a tape of this talk to Cynthia. It's always someone else. And I fail to listen to what God is saying to me. Like the Pharisees, I'm so concerned about other people's failures that I fail to see my own. So will you pray with me that all of us here today will be those who listen to the word of God and act on it. As the Apostle James wrote, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Of course, if we are to faithfully listen to that word and apply it to ourselves and work out what it means for us as a church living here in the East Oxford, it's going to be tough. We're going to be challenged. We're going to have struggles with the depth of sin in our own lives. And we're going to need to help one another. We're going to need to pray for one another. We're going to need to be open and honest with the things we struggle with. But we need God, above all, to help us to hear what he's saying and to do it. God is good. In the Lord Jesus, he's provided full forgiveness for all our failures. Both prodigal and self-righteous children can find a welcome in the Father's house. But once we're in the Father's house, we're expected to adopt the Father's values. And the great thing is, of course, he gives us his word and his spirit to enable those values to be shaped in our lives. He doesn't leave us on our own. And a sign that we truly received his forgiveness and his welcome is that we want to live like him and for him and are beginning to do so. We don't have to be perfect. We just have to be on the right road. So let's pray that we will be those who continue to listen to the Father's words and to allow them to change us little by little into the likeness of Christ, demonstrating his compassion and using his resources that he's entrusted to us to seek the good of others and the glory of the Lord Jesus.